of you thankful again for another year celebrating your sufficiency, even though that's the theme this year, that's what we do every year. Your word is sufficient for all of life and godliness. We're grateful for that, for our own lives as well as the lives of people who we get to serve by allowing your spirit to use us. And uh, we do know that, however, even though the word is perfect and it's all that we do, our ability to properly interpret that word and apply that word uh, may need quite a bit of work. Because we're fallen people and we need your spirit to guide us. And so we pray this workshop would really help us with our ability to uh, be a discerner of your word and one who uses it wisely and correctly. And so uh, we ask you to guide us toward those goals. Rightly I have to raise this one and I'm a dangerous guy when I'm not over Alright, rightly handling scripture, which is called the science of hermeneutics. Those who are more technical hermeneutics is the art of interpretation and how you interpret scriptures critical because if you have the wrong interpretation, you do a lot of damage instead of a lot of helpful people. And even worse than that, um, one of the most comments I've ever heard on the subject of proper interpretation of scripture was by a Presbyterian fellow at a conference I was a part of years ago, many years ago, in the early 80s. He was saying, as he was lecturing on interpretation and applying it properly to our culture in various areas, not just counseling, but he wasn't talking about counseling much at all, he was talking about government and law and politics and foreign policy and all kinds of things. His Bible's loaded with information by other things, too. And he made this comment, says, when the Bible has, has given us one commandment out of ten, that warns us about bearing false witness against our neighbor, which is misrepresenting the neighbor and giving false testimony. How much sore judgment do you think would fall in a person who bears false witness about God's words? What God has said, what he meant by his words. Because that, every time you're teaching the Bible, you're teaching the Bible. God warns you, not many should be that's a sort of judgment. And I was a young preacher. That's preaching, that's public teaching. Uh, the same thing applies when you're sitting in a room and somebody's hurting and you open up the Bible and you try to tell them what God has to say about their problem. What they should do about their problem. Properly represented as God said, and what he meant. And that's interpretation. So, here's some really brilliant uh, things. There's a lot of stuff out there. He's going to recommend uh, a particular book I personally have never could ever read. But as I've gone through the 
notes of just using, uh, this is a good book. This is a, a typical sound book uh, on hermeneutics. And uh, so he says, as, as we begin, he's expressing a level of concern about how we as biblical counselors ought to treat the Bible in our counseling. As he listens to counseling and counselors, he's quickly alarmed at the number of times they hear scripture being interpreted incorrectly and sometimes alarmingly so. Therefore, uh, we will make a case in this workshop to get back to basics uh, lessons in Hermeneutics. And he's going to recommend the book Grasping God's Word, a hands-on approach to reading, interpreting, and applying the Bible. By J. Scott Duleo, or Duol, and J. Daniel Hayes. So uh, some of the outline comes from that book. Now, First uh, thing of as we go through the first one, the importance of choosing the good translation of the Bible to use. Uh, and the second point will be, I'll repeat it later, so don't worry about writing it down now, it'll be up to the importance of observing everything you can possibly see uh, in the passage you're looking at. And the third one will be the importance of a clear and compelling application of the passage and concept. That's the structure outlined today. We're starting with the importance of choosing the proper translation. Uh, I think we covered this rather quickly. We can overestimate the importance of choosing the translation. The key question out there is what is the translation package? Well, you need to know that uh, there's two different uh, general theories on how to translate the as you all know. And uh, the two approaches that there are people who, who focus on learning the Bible in a different language, this is the English part. One, one in English, so we can read the Bible for ourselves. God is speaking to us in our language, which is obviously. in English. The problem is uh, languages are different. If you study them to some degree, you have to study some languages. Just Latin in high school, three years ago, because I was a Catholic, I understand what you're saying in the multiple, you can ask if you're not in English in those days. 
So there are people who are experts in the languages that they work in. We don't have a document of 27th scholars who are experts in Hebrew working on the whole section together. And this must be the English community. So they put their mind together to make the most accurate translation of English within the language.
our view of Scripture and its authority. And we've been talking about that all day. But there are Christians like you and me that, that believe the Bible is good stuff. And But if we are in that category that Keith mentioned earlier, uh, the Bible is really good and it's necessary. But that doesn't have every single thing we need. Whereas there's other helpful stuff out there. And we need to use that stuff too. Well, if you have that in your system as a pre-understanding, presupposition, that's going to affect your ability to interpret the scripture. Because if a scripture, if a scriptural passage seems to indicate to you that it's saying that uh, this passage is really the understanding of what's behind this particular problem, and here's what ought to be done about it, something in you says it can't be saying that. Because I know, see what I mean? You, you have a pre, pre-suppositional bias in your view of scripture and its authority that hinders your ability to interpret properly. Our view of the Holy Spirit and its illumination of understanding of the text. Is it, is it just our reading and our reasoning ability that puts some scriptures together and the light bulb goes off? Because if we're really good people at logic, and reasoning, and, you know, I think I'm unusually good at that, but don't we all? You know what I mean? Can't we break down somebody else's argument? We're saying, how can they get there from here? Don't they know that this is that? And we can figure it out and make sense of it? I, I, I think that's true of a lot of people that we, we all think we're above average in and sorting things out and making sense out of things. So we've got to watch that, that problem, too. It's really the Holy Spirit who illumines the scriptures to us as we read. So he's using reasoning ability, certainly. But it's not our skill and our logic and our reasoning that actually enables us to understand the text. It's the Holy Spirit illuminating to us and collectively doing that over years of study, shining more light on passages which enables our reason to connect verses that we didn't connect before. Number five, our dedication and desire to study in order to grasp the meaning of the text. Can I underestimate that? I, I can only do what I do because I've been doing this 42 years every day. I probably missed a dozen days in 42 years of not reading the Bible. And I don't mean reading a verse and then little story in a poem at the end. I have nothing against daily devotions, but that's not studying the Bible. You can study the Bible. You read it, you read it voluminously, you read it, you compare notes, you read different versions, you look up Greek and Hebrew, and you don't need to do, everybody needs to do it, but if you're going to teach the Bible, or preach the Bible, or counsel the Bible, you got to be a student of the Bible. So if you're not dedicated and desiring to do that, you're going to have trouble interpreting the Bible just by hitting a passage once in a while that might be helpful to help somebody. Uh, there's a bigger picture than that one passage or two. Okay. Right, that ties into number six. You assume the familiarity with the text that should be text. Our knowledge of biblical history and culture, that's bigger than we can imagine uh, because uh, what was it like for those people, what was their culture? Well, those words meant something in their culture to them that might not mean the same thing in our culture. They can make a comment about 
immorality. And we immediately say, I know what that means. Uh, do you really? It depends on what's immorality, common knowledge in our culture. And that's changed, hasn't it? Can you imagine 20 years? Can you imagine 20 more years? Kids grown up understanding what's called immorality at that time. What's going to be immorality at that time? I haven't, I haven't uh, the ability to conceive of what, I mean, homosexual relationships, uh, trans, there's all kinds of transgenders. There's, there's, there's labels and things that don't even exist where people say, that's who I am. And school systems, colleges, are struggling creating new uh, entrance forms for categories because there are people who will say, what is this gender thing? What do I put in there? What do you think you are? Well, I, I feel like I'm male, but that could change. I could be... I mean, so there's people who actually believe that gender changes, and it will change often back and forth. And, and um, how many genders are there? I used to jokingly say there's three types of sex. Male sex, female sex, insects. I don't think that's going to be a joke. I mean, who's, they're going to create some other genders. I mean, that's where it's going. So we don't know the culture. And we need to know that one thing we need to know is what we really need to know is the culture of Bible times. Old Testament culture, New Testament culture, what it was like in Greece, what it was like in Israel and the surrounding pagan nations. Because then we can interpret the Bible because God was speaking to them. Listen to this. God wrote to these people to them, but not to us. The Bible was not, not written to us. It was written to those people. We are grafted in, and if we fit in the same conditions as them in the relationship with God. We can apply the Bible to us. But uh, if God were to write another Bible, uh, he would take into consideration our current culture and give us words and speak into our culture in the language that we're familiar with in our culture today. What we have to do is transport ourselves the best we can through our own study of biblical history, culture, and knowledge, and understanding how language works, especially biblical language, to give us clues on that. But as we move forward, uh, our calling, our gifts, our abilities, which are given to us by God in both understanding and communication of text, and our daily battle with sin, which limits and obscures our ability to hear and discern what the text is saying to us and through us to others. Once we acknowledge as best we can these pre-understandings, we're then ready to move on to some contextual keys to understand God's Word. So we have three keys coming up, and they are um, the historical cultural context. We just mentioned something about that uh, a little bit ago, but uh, Duval and Hayes suggest on page 100, historical cultural context relates to just about anything outside of the text that will help us understand the text itself. For example, who was the writer of this passage of scripture, this book of scripture? Who was the biblical audience being addressed? What, was, what kind of persons were they? 
we have positions of authority. Is it written to Pharisees or Old Testament Levitical priests? Does that make a difference? Because it would be addressed as a person with a position of authority, or it would be these be the common people uh, in the tribes? Or what, what's going on here? Give us an idea of history and context. And what tools can I use in grasping these things? This is where Christians get in trouble because this is why, even though the Bible is the only book we need, we had to get rid of every book and only keep one, that's what we do, right? But have you known any Christian to keep only a Bible? No. The problem with us is we, we start buying books like crazy. Books that don't help us fill in the gaps of all these things we didn't know. Here's some of the books that would you we'd be using for for help with history and culture. The Bible handbooks, there's a number of them out there. I probably had six or seven on my shelf. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament introductions or surveys, overviews of the Old Testament. Overviews. One of the one of the greatest series of books when I first went in the early seventies was uh, John Phillips. He wrote uh, exploring Philippians, exploring Ephesians, a bunch of series of books like that. And my eyes opened wide. Just gave me a greater, bigger context. And of course, there's tons of books like that. But uh, just a book that it's not the Bible, but it's writing about the Bible and giving the background about the author, what life was like when that person person lived, what kind of things came out. And of course, when you get into that deeper, you're getting into commentaries. And I had. Uh, one volume commentary, so that's a, uh, a bunch of different kinds of authors, old ones, Matthew Henry, and older than that. Uh, but then that wasn't enough for me. I started buying three volume commentaries. One guy writes three volumes, the whole Bible of three volumes. Then the next thing you know, I'm getting commentary sets where I'm getting one volume on Matthew and one volume on Luke, and all the way through Revelation. So I got. 27 volumes, although sometimes people write two volumes instead of the Gospel of John. Then you get the Old Testament, where you've got a volume. So you can see how far you can get in the research and study. You're getting in depth of all the extra stuff. But these people do a lot of research, more than I would do, that time to do. And they've read people who are older than they are, and Spurgeon and Calvin and Luther and all kinds of people they read. So you got history, books that focus on history. The Bible Atlas is to give you a better understanding of the layout of the land and the topography of the land. Like I remember reading as a young Christian uh, where they said we will go up to Jerusalem. And I thought, um, well, I'm thinking of like going from Cleveland to Canada. But I look on the map and, and the town they're going from is like Galilee and Jerusalem the south. So what do you mean going up to Jerusalem? And then I started to realize I'm going uphill. Jerusalem's a mountain range, five five mountains, and uh, Galilee's in a plain down down up north. Up north, but you're going up hill, you're going up north, back to south, whatever. So getting the lay of the land helps you understand the language of the Old Testament where people are traveling. You can't automatically assume you until you understand how they talk and they have Then you got dictionaries just like previous and background commentaries. 
which is really interesting too. Contextual key number two, and when I teach hermeneutics, I, it's never a one-hour lecture. It's a series of classes. But I, want, I spend a lot of time in this section, literary context, because more mistakes are made by Christians, I think, in the area of not understanding the literature. And I don't even know if they teach literature in high school anymore. I heard very little about it. When I went to high school, we, we were forced to read literature. But I'm really glad we were, because I got familiar with poetry and how to read poetry, so that you're getting out of poetry what was meant by the poet when they wrote it. And you find out it's a whole different, whole different rules for writing and reading poetry. It's obviously uh, permission to not say what you're trying to say, but use creative language or metaphors or figures of speech or substitutes to represent what you're trying to say, and so that the person reading the poetry has to think through all that, and then all of a sudden the light bulb is up. This is not about a Grecian urn at all. The ode to the Grecian urn, remember that one? That has nothing to do with pottery. What a whole new world opened up to me in that class. The whole world of poetry opened up to me. And we, we don't do much with that in our culture at all. Uh, and people who are poets or, uh, or like, like Guinness, they're, they're kind of in a different class of people. They speak with their own. If you're not into that, you look in kind of strange people. Like like uh, when I was in, in the 60s, long hair and everything, there was a beat poet, a beatnik, and cool Jewish man. And they'd read some words that made no sense at all. And everybody, if they were smoking, everybody would go, wow, she has a I wasn't smoking, I thought it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, if you were into caught the vibe or something, I guess. But but there's literal poetry, literature in the, in the Bible. Probably just literal poetry stuff. And uh, Song of Solomon is a lot of poetry. So there's a lot of liberty taken by God who's writing in a poetic literary style. And there's other kinds of literature, there's narr narratives and didactic scripture, which is teaching portions of scripture. Narratives are storytelling. And uh, there's wisdom literature. Well, there's going to be a list coming on here. But uh, every, every one of those different types of literature has rules for communication, rules for writing, rules for interpreting and getting the message out. If you don't know those rules, you're going to think that I know that you're supposed to take the Bible literally. That's what I've heard pastors say and preachers say and people are raised say. You take the Bible literally. So when Jesus said, this temple is going to destroy, and in three days I'll raise it up. And their problem was they took him literally. When it wasn't supposed to be taken literally. Actually, the real explanation is this. You're supposed to take him literally, and he's literally using poetic license to explain 
And when you're listening to Clay Slicer, you literally treat it as poetry, and you say, what's the real thing going on here? I mean, so literally is really how you interpret the Bible. But that only makes sense if you know that there's literature and rules for different kinds of literature that you take literally. But if you don't know that, you think literally means literally, literally, plain literal. So if it says Quirinius uh, in the days of Quirinius was governor, and, uh, Augustus sent throughout all the world, and the whole world be, would be taxed. Then you would say that the Chinese were taxed and, and Native American Indians were taxed. But, but obviously, not that everybody was taxed in all the world. So all doesn't mean all, all the time. The context limits the interpretation. done this for 42 years, I have thoroughly enjoyed every second of this work, but it hasn't felt like work to me at all, and I haven't felt limited ministering to people, and I didn't know everything I know now, 10 years ago, or 40 years ago, but I was so concentrated, and so I learned more as I go, and if I made a few mistakes on the way, which I probably did, uh, God still helps them in spite of my lack of knowledge about certain things yet because my intentions were uh, honored. My use of scripture was pretty accurate. And uh, God uses his word. He loves his word. So, if, you know, if we're going to mess up because of a good intention and we didn't know how, how to research a little bit longer on this particular subject, to be sure God knows that. He's not going to mess somebody's life up because we're not where we should be yet. I think the only thing I feel guilty about is if I was lazy and didn't want to keep reading and studying, so I just remember that I was over periods I'll be doing this. So just do what you can. Do the best you can. Keep going. Keep reading stuff on the side. Just sharpen your skills. Keep attending things. You know, and that's what all of us do. And we all get better. More people for us. Right. That's true. Yeah. Do, how do we know that how we, how we misuse the Greek or how we twist the scripture a little bit to make a point? That, that's the first thing from Chancellor's mind to something else we said was really power taxing. We use it right, and that's what they walk out, leave it, and the thing that you messed up, nobody knows. <laughs> you know, the thing is, just trust God and, and go. And this is helping us realize that we just can't treat this lightly. We, we've got to be serious about what we do and keep working at it. So what uh, the literary context uh, 
relates to the particular form of passage takes the words, sentence, paragraphs, the surrounding passage, the surrounding, the surrounding context. And that's what I just explained. Here's some of the different things in the Old Testament. There's narrative, there's law, uh, poetry, prophecy, and wisdom, kinds of literature. And you don't have to write all those down. Those they would be in some of these other uh, books that you pick up easily on this subject. New Testament of the Gospels, the history, uh, letters, which are primarily didactic literature that teaching epistles, teaching letters, and apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, which there is some in the Old Testament as well, which is very uh, symbolic, filled with spiritual symbols like the moon turns to blood, sun will not give its light. That's not necessarily meant to be taken literally. And people who read those scriptures in the New Testament about the end times uh, often uh, are waiting to, to see at the literal sun stop shining. Uh, and uh, the moon turned to blood. Those, those are figures of speech that are commonly used in apocalyptic literature everywhere, not just in the Bible, literature and other parts of the world, other religions, many just common language that people talk about the end of something. They use all these embellished terms. We're running out of time. Um, and there are sub-genres, like in the New Testament, you have parables, or even in the Old, and riddles, and sermons. And uh, Duval and Hayes talks about the, the uh, the form of the text by John Ray is connected with context, and so we need to take the literary John Ray very seriously. All right, let's move on quickly. The context of word usage, the same thing as how words are used in uh, all those passages in their literary style. So you want to look for words crucial to the passage. When uh, a Bible writer keeps using the same word repeated over and over through two or three chapters. He's trying to make a point, obviously, uh, that uh, we might miss, especially if we read just three or four verses and meditate on and then we get back to that chapter for three or four days. We don't notice these kind of things. So I, I encourage people, if you're going to be a student, once in a while, take an epistle and cite it. Give yourself time to sit down and read the whole thing through, like you got a letter from your friend. Because there were no chapter breaks when that stuff was written in the Bible. Just read it, read it through. That's when I'm, taught, when I'm teaching on uh, Peace and Joy, I talk about, uh, talk about the Last Supper, where Jesus tells them what his concerns are about the next day, you know, later that same day, when he's going to be crucified. And really, it starts at chapter 13, verse 1, and goes to the end of chapter 16. So Christians need to sit down and read those chapters without stopping and imagining that you're climbing at the table and, and be, be there and hear the whole thing unfold. You can see way more than you ever see by reading part of chapter 13 and reading half of chapter 14 later on and skipping to 16 and something. Okay, figures of speech that are used, words that are unclear, uh, puzzling or difficult, look them up. Look them up in a Greek dictionary or Hebrew dictionary, too. And you can use Strong's numbers, uh, 
in the, to, without having to know Greek or Hebrew, uh, and you can find the numbering system in Bible pattern. There's plenty of software to do that like right now. And contextual word studies, uh, context determines the word meaning. And I gave an illustration of that with the word all. All can't, all can't mean all. Uh, it depends on the context. It means all of Here's another quick example. Uh, all died in Adam, and all will be made alive in Christ. Well, everybody died in Adam, so everybody's going to be made alive in Christ. So there's universal salvation. Everybody be saved. Everybody got lost. Why do you think everybody's going to get saved for Jesus Christ? No. It's, it's all in Christ. All is in Christ in every sense. Everybody happens to be in Adam, so they're all going to die. But not everybody's in Christ. So you've you got to look at the context. Get that truth out, and uh, there's a fallacy. There's not try to do this really quickly. There's an English-only fallacy, which uh, don't base your understanding on the uh, English word rather than the Hebrew Greek word underlies it. And this one helps explain that. They're like two opposites. The root fallacy. Don't always assume that the meaning of the word is found in its original root. So. You see a word in English, and you go by its English meaning, and so that's, that's trusting the translators to be accurate, and ignore the Hebrew behind it, what that word actually means. And uh, on the other hand, you can, you can go, well, you can't trust the English word at all. It's the Hebrew word, and you look at the root of the word, and that's what it means, and so you ignore the translators' expertise and how they translate English. Uh, some of this lecture is for more people involved with Germany's who want to do more research and study in that, but uh, it's giving you an introduction. There's a time frame fallacy where a current word meaning is, uh, uh, don't take a current word meaning and read it back into the Bible's world of words that may not have had the meaning we attach to it at all. I'll give an illustration of that uh, backwards. We'll see that. An overload fallacy is don't take a word which has multiple meanings in English depending on the context. Assume that you can attach every meaning to it and bring it to that context. Uh, so you have to fine tune which really gets the context. Then you can be overly impressed by the word count fallacy, that the word is used so many times and has the same meaning every time it's used. But that's not true. For example, we use an example illustration in class that I teach uh, the word faith. If I mention the word faith, well, we all know what that means, right? But it's, it's used three different ways with three different meanings in the New Testament. So if you don't know that it can be used that way, and then let the context tell you what the author meant by faith in that context. Because if you read, uh, well, this is, this is faith. Here's another example. But a woman shall be saved by childbearing. Okay? So you can either give your life to Christ or you can have a baby and you'll go to heaven. See what I mean? If you can be saved by childbearing, how are we going to get saved? Me and you. Right? Not going to happen. Word concept. Uh, 
Don't assume that a certain word contains an entire concept. A concept like the church has more than one word to describe all of your facts. And selective evidence fallacy don't come to interpret with only selective evidence. You must accept all the interpretive evidence which it passes to you. All right. The interpretive method two, they talk about looking for things more than you would uh, sense right away. Any general statements made, any specific details in the passage, any questions and answers that are given in the passage may or may not apply to constant problems you're working with, but it might be something you could excite for in the future. Any dialogue, any purpose statements are really helpful to help interpret. For instance, the end of the Gospel of John chapter says, uh, I write these things unto you so that uh, you may believe in Jesus Christ the Son of God. So he actually tells you why he wrote his official preaching gospel. And so if you know that, then you can use that through the rest of the gospel going backwards. This is this chapter is here as a as a potential source of a reason why a person should believe in Jesus Christ. You can see that in every chapter. Okay, conditional clauses, actions, rules of people, actions, rules of God, gospel stuff, emotional terms of tone use, and look for repetition of words, contrasts, comparisons, lists, shots and effects, figures of speech, conjunctions, verbs. Uh, verbs are very important. Also passive verbs especially give you some movement of the passive words one into the other. Pronouns use for connection looks for connections between paragraphs and episodes. Uh, look for story shifts, major breaks, pivots. Look for interchange, contrast, contrast, and carry two different stories in order to show similarities and similarities. And chiasms are difficult to explain, so we'll skip that for now. Anybody heard of chiasms? Chiasms? A couple people. Uh, they're, not, they're not real big. When, when you get deep in the studies, they, they become very interesting to you, but they're not critical. We know that. Uh, and interpretation method three, um, we have to work our way through all these things to get a better uh, understanding of how we approach a passage. But once we, we do, we're on the way to helping them become uh, best they can be. Then we need to put it to work. No. I, like I said, I never heard of it at all until I looked at this last night. It's, it's obviously that these are all sound principles. So you put this to work by grasping the text, summarize the situation and the meaning of the text to the original eyes, determine the differences between that situation and the current situation, and list the theological principles, principles communicated by the passage so that you can uh, see how they were applied then and then look for parallels now that you can apply it now in the situation. And then you are going to be more uh, accurate in helping people. And uh, quick shortcuts for those of you that mentioned what uh, Sheila mentioned. Uh, the people that wrote this book, the, the Bible Separate Grassing, Grassing that's where it's, it's a workbook that's home with assignments and it's a website. And it's, you can't stomach working through the 462 page book. They're condensed into 160 page book called the Journey of God's Word. And if that's not enough, they provide a study guide called Grasping God's Word, Laminated Sheet, which condenses everything down to principles uh, to front and back. So uh, 
There's no reason not to grasp to better understand God's work. So, it's hard to memorize all that stuff, but if you can get the title, which you've got on the title of the session of grasp God's work, and, uh, and Google it and you'll find all that stuff. Okay? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, serious, serious or not, uh, let's look at it. God knows you. He knows how much time you've got. He knows your desires. And you just pray and do do the best you can. And there's no condemnation. You know I mean? Do the best you can and you'll be a blessing to people. You just be encouraged. Don't be discouraged at all. Uh, it's fun working with God. I'm learning more about him and his word, and uh, so let's be and out to the next, next thing over. Heavenly Father, give you thanks for our time together. <coughs> Pray that you will help all of us to be better students than we are, and uh, better helps to you as we reach out to people in your name to make their lives better and uh, more glorifying and honoring to you in Christ's name.